Coming up on Tech Nation, how to escape safely from just about any historical event. Wired contributor Cody Cassidy joins me to talk about how to survive history, how to outrun a Tyrannosaurus, escape Pompeii, get off the Titanic, and survive the rest of history's deadliest catastrophes. Then, some more present-day advice from Wharton professor Jonah Berger. He takes us through the science and scenarios of how to change anyone's mind. Anyone's, really. He's here today with his book, The Catalyst. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. It turns out we're reading from six to 12 hours a day on our digital screens. So what's the difference between reading on paper versus reading on our tablets or laptops? Cognitive scientist Marianne Wolf is the author of Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. Well, Mara, it really will always depend on the individual's reading circuit. And that's what I want to actually begin with as an answer to your question. The fact is, we were never born to read. That's not what the species gave us. They gave us language, we have vision. But we who are human created reading, and the brain allows us to create new circuits for new cognitive processes. So we have this circuitry that is developing and is very plastic and will reflect the characteristics of its environment. So a reading brain can be very simple. It can be used for decoding information. And that's what the young do. But our whole hope for the young is that they are connecting that brain with ever more sophisticated cognitive processes. Now, that plastic circuit will reflect the writing system, like a Chinese circuit is different from an English reading brain circuit. Even English is different from German and Italian. So you have different circuits. But very much apropos of your question, the circuit will reflect the medium. So if the medium, like print, is advantaging those processes that are more, let's say, cognitively demanding, what I call the deep reading processes. When you read in print, you almost automatically activate those deeper, time-consuming processes like inference and ultimately critical analysis. When we read on a screen, we can use deep reading processes, but more than likely, we have become so inundated with information that we have begun to change the circuit so that it reflects the advantages of that medium. So the digital medium advantages fast processing, much more visual handling of multiple aspects of information, multitasking. So we are learning to read in a different way that is a circuitry that devotes less time to the deeper reading processes. So even though, and we have very interesting evidence, we can read the same exact novella 
This is research by a wonderful woman named Anne Mangan in Norway. The kids, high school students, college students, read Jenny Monamor, a lusty French novella. They read the same actual content, print, versus a screen. The kids who were reading it on print, uh, on, uh, in a paperback, had far more understanding of the details and the sequencing of the plot. Therefore, their comprehension was actually better than the kids who enjoyed it and had the gist of it, but didn't have the same command. They hadn't allocated sufficient time to processing some of the more details. Now, why is that? Because I'm asking the question you might have just asked. I could see it in your face. <laughs> Why would we do that? Well, when we are reading digitally, by and large, we are in a day that we are reading 6 to 12 hours on a screen with voluminous information. What we do is we adapt. We adapt by learning to skim very quickly, word spot and browse. Cognitive scientist Dr. Marianne Wolf is the director of the Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice at UCLA. Her book is Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, it's Wired contributor Cody Cassidy. He joins me to talk about how to survive history, how to outrun a Tyrannosaurus, escape Pompeii, get off the Titanic, and survive the rest of history's deadliest catastrophes. Then some arguably more useful advice from Wharton professor Jonah Berger. His book is The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Cody Cassidy. Well, Cody, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I have to say that the very first entry in your subtitle is How to Outrun a Tyrannosaurus. But uh, Tyrannosaurus, that great meat-eating dinosaur, they missed coexisting with humans by some 63 million years. <laughs> yeah, so that it, it's not as the most practical advice, at least uh, for running out running a Tyrannosaurus, but I, it sort of got me excited about doing this book when I read a, a study, actually, that, that seemed to suggest that I could outrun it. And I sort of became fascinated with the, the mathematics behind that, that answer. And, and, and I even went out and, and ran uh, on my street to, to see if I actually could. And, and that sort of got me running down this these fun ideas about how to survive different events in history is sort of a way to put your feet on the ground in these ancient events and, and sort of learn and, and have a bit of fun as well. Well, it's the kind of thing that's important if you're Steven Spielberg 
or you're some kind of a science fiction writer and you're like imagining, well, it doesn't exist right now and you're reading somebody else's. It's like, well, what is it that is really real? How do you put yourself in it? And you mean they didn't move very fast? I mean, what? what <laughs> give us the story on the Tyrannosaurus. No, they're, it turns out they're so heavy, actually. Uh, they weighed almost about as, about as much as an, an African elephant. And that means they couldn't run. They couldn't have both feet off the ground at the same time. They would have they would have shattered their leg bones. So they were they were really just fast walkers. Uh, and that's still about 12 or 13 miles an hour, they estimate, which at least for a sort of uh, modestly athletic person like myself is, is, is actually a little bit faster than I could run. But it turns out I sort of I dug a little bit deeper, and and there was an interesting study that I found. And uh, these uh, they placed accelerometers on on African predators, and and even though the impala is much slower than the cheetah, it still outruns it about two thirds of the time, and it and it does so by sort of waiting until the cheetah catches up, and then sort of dodging to the left and right. So it actually doesn't even run at its top speed. It sort of tries to maintain its balance and maintain uh, the ability to turn abruptly. And so I, I figured if, if you do the numbers, uh, you actually, and use the Impala strategy, you actually probably could out, outrun the Tyrannosaurus. Well, the other thing is stamina and you got to maintain your energy. You know, you might be scared at first, but adrenaline <laughs> only lasts so long. So yeah, yeah, I like this. Yeah. The Impala is, is, uh, has a better uh, stamina than the cheetah. And, and we probably had better stamina than the Tyrannosaurus, even though the Tyrannosaurus did have great stamina. Uh, humans have, uh, it's one of our greatest athletic features is our stamina. So we, you probably could outrun it if you, if you maintained, you kept dodging. <laughs> Let's hope we're never in that, uh, in that situation. But if it's a similar situation, you, you got the answer here. This is great. <laughs> this is great. Now, what's truly important here is that you're not talking in broad strokes. In every case, you're picking up various scientific studies or evidence that we now have, uh, and sometimes historical evidence, which relates these things to an individual and to each of our listeners that are, are, are listening. And focusing on me, one of my favorite topics, let's leap ahead to your chapter on how to survive the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. For surely, if you live around here, you say there's going to be another one, or as we in San Francisco say, the big one. What do we know from 1906? Yeah. So in 1906, San Francisco is uh, was sort of just growing after the the gold rush influx of, of uh, massive immigration, and so uh, they actually created a lot of land where there were sort of marshy bay or uh, muddy riverbeds, which was they just basically infilled it with dirt and and even some trash, and that created uh, it's fine for building on until there's an until there's an earthquake, and and on April 18th in 1906. Uh, a massive, almost 8.0 earthquake that struck just off of where the Golden Gate Bridge would soon be would soon be built, and it sort of sent sent this energy, which is sort of three foot waves of earthen undulations through through the earth that, that created sort of uh, liquefied these these areas that had been uh, sort of infilled. So so if you were on a hill in San Francisco, you actually did much better. That's uh, sort of any any hill was sort of bedrock. And and you can know it's on bedrock basically in San Francisco if it's on a hill. But the the lowland areas, which is sort of the, the near the bay and the mission district and the and the marina district, if you're familiar with San Francisco, uh, shook violently. And and a lot of the buildings which were a lot of uh, either brick or or uh, wood construction, many of them collapsed. But that was actually only the, the beginning of the of the the terror really. It's sort of 
all of the the gas mains and water mains in the city shattered. And so basically uh, almost 50 fires sparked up in, in almost immediately after the earthquake, many, many of them in the south of the city, and there was nary a drop of water to, to put them out. So uh, the earthquake was really only the beginning of the disaster. Well, it's interesting because if you live here, this is the vocabulary that you use all the time. Is it a foreshock of a bigger earthquake about to come? Is Was that the earthquake that I suddenly realized? And then there are aftershocks uh, to that. Uh, mm-hmm. But that first jolt uh, was just a foreshock. It was 30 seconds later that you got the 7.8 magnitude. I say that for the locals. We want to know exactly. (laughs) 7.8 magnitude, which we haven't seen in our lifetimes. Nothing like this. Um, And it's that 30 seconds you pretty much focus on in the beginning Mm -hmm. of your escape plan. Yeah. So a lot of the eyewitnesses suggest that there was a foreshock, a jolt, about 30 seconds, as you said, before the, the earthquake. And if you were on the street, it actually would be a better idea to run into one of these uh, poorly constructed buildings because uh, as dangerous as those buildings were, it's actually worse to be on the street because basically all every brick chimney in the, in the city and, and the brick sidings of these buildings collapsed. Uh, and so it's better to have a roof over your head as, as, as shaky as that roof may have even been built. And, and one of the sort of charities of the earthquake was that it struck it uh, just after five in the morning, which is when many people were still inside and sleeping. Uh, so it, it actually would have been much worse had it struck a few hours later when when people were walking to work. But then, of course, as soon as the earthquake is over, it's it's a good idea to run out of the building because the fire is coming and it sort of uh, slowly starts from the south. But eventually, because there's no water to put out, sweeps almost across the entire city. More than more than three quarters of the buildings in the city burned. And so you have about a few hours and and. and how to escape is a bit of a, or where you should go is, is, is a bit of a conundrum because there weren't any bridges out of the city at this time. There was, uh, so really the, the best way, uh, the way I suggest would be to get to the water where there was sort of a, a Dunkirk-like evacuation. All the, the boats in the bay came to the harbors and, and evacuated more than 30,000 people across. So I, if you run quickly down, uh, down Market Street, if you're familiar with San Francisco and, and you get to the ferry building, uh, you can get on one of these boats before about noon and and they can take you to safety. This is this whole thing about you bring it to yourself. It's like, hey, you want like a north-south building as opposed to an east-west. And you can ask anybody in San Francisco if you went to their house or their apartment and you'd say, well, which way does the earthquake go? Oh, it goes this way. And that's why we have the this set up here and we don't do anything over here. <laughs> we, we have it. Or, everybody knows which way the earthquake goes. Yeah. It's a theme actually in this book is that um, even though they were familiar with earthquakes before 1906 that, that struck this area, it, it really, in, 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 in many of these cases, were familiar with these disasters bef- before they happened or familiar with the potential. It really, once the, the big disaster occurs is when everybody uh, learns and, and adapts. And, and now, even 100 years later, we, we know which, which direction our building faces and if that's a good thing or a bad thing for the earthquake. Well, it's interesting because on my block, every other house has the the fireplace on one side of the living room versus the other. Just sort of every other house down the block, and the people in on on mine, we're on the side that it it shakes too. So you can put things on your mantelpiece; that's not a problem. But on the other side, if you're every other house, you better you know. You can glue it down or you can, you just, or very, you know, it's very discreet <laughs> or you don't put anything on it because <laughs> if there's a little bitty one off, it will come. 
And certainly, you know, you point out the 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 pipes all broke. And you can drive around San Francisco and see these big circular things in the middle of intersections. Now, those are cisterns. So we don't need water. The water is in the cistern. <laughs> so the pipes can be there. So we're semi-prepared. But what we weren't prepared for that I totally never heard about were the 60 Longhorn cattle and the stampede down Market Street. What are you talking about? Yeah. This was a, one of the, I certainly hadn't heard of it until I began my research into this event. And it was a lot of the sort of South Mission and, and Mission District in the South of San Francisco at the time had was uh, stockyards. And so uh, these stockyard buildings are actually some of the worst performing buildings in the earthquake because you want actually a lot of interior walls uh, when during an earthquake without, and these sort of open buildings, these warehouses uh, we're more prone to collapse. And so don't go to the gym. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of none of the gym. No big gym. Uh, open concept kitchens. Yeah, not not a good not a good thing. But and these these warehouses, so many of them collapsed and and the steer in this case uh escaped and began uh rushing up uh Mission Street toward toward market. And and they even uh gored uh, uh some people. And so it was sort of uh it, it was a danger and it's sort of the running of like the running of Pamplona, the, the bulls of Pamplona sort of came to San Francisco for one morning. And there was martial law, but it was illegal martial law. Yeah, the the General uh, Funston in charge of uh, the Presidio military garrison at the time was um, was some, something described. One, one, one thing I read about him described him as a sort of a man of action. He was a uh, he had won the Medal of Honor and he he was a. Uh, at the top of the city, he was sort of looking down on it on the time when the when the earthquake happened and seeing the sort of chaos of evacuation unfold. And he was sort of uh, driven to, to to take action. Uh, it was an illegal action. He it was sort of the largest uh, military occupation of a U.S. city during peacetime that's ever happened. He sort of ordered his his garrison into the city with bayonets fixed to prevent looting. He was very concerned with looting, and many of these soldiers actually followed this his orders um, closely and uh, tragically all too closely without asking very many questions. So as you're running, actually, I suggest keeping your arms empty and maybe even not running uh, sort of a, maybe a fast walk is better because they, they shot uh, how many people they shot is unknown. Maybe more than a hundred probably because the evidence is all, is all burned up. But um, yeah, it's one of the tragic and, and sort of hard to foresee dangers if, if you were there in 1906. So either don't loot or don't appear to loot. <laughs> yes, or don't even don't even save your own stuff. Unfortunately, they, they don't, this many of these people could have probably been saving their own their own items that were about to burn up. Well, yes, there was a fire with the gas and the electricity and all of that, and they started detonating buildings. You know, coming down Market Street, at, exactly to the ferry building where you would get on that. Uh, that, but one of the things you didn't write about in the book that's my favorite is if you're down by the ferry building, down by the to the Hyatt Regency, and you go over like a half a block to what's now the Boulevard Restaurant. It's just a small building, a couple of like, that's the only building left standing from that time when they just they detonate they burst the whole city. Do you know why? Well, a lot of the the buildings along the uh, along the bay actually were saved because. Some of the only water in the city came from uh, some fire t uh, firefighting tugs that that they shipped that the that, that shipped over to the to the, the harbor, and they were able to. That's basically the only water that there was in the city to fight. They pumped the water out of the bay and then used these long hoses to fight 
the fires. And so the really the only successful firefighting effort occurred along the water, along the water line there. As you said, the firefighters within the city, their only recourse was to uh, destroy buildings, blow them up uh, first along Market Street and then along Van Ness where they should try to create these fire lines. But it was um, a, a complete failure. It was actually sort of backfired as they mostly just spread the fire with, with these with these detonations. In one case, even blew up a building that had some explosives in it. Um, and some some of the firefighters were killed in the explosion. So the, the firefighting effort within the city was was a complete disaster. But the, the firefighters that came in from from the bay actually did save some buildings. Well, Reardon's pub is pretty famous for the locals, and that's because he went out in the street, Reardon did, saw them blowing up buildings, and he said, if you're a firefighter or a policeman, free booze and free food. So for four, three or four days, that's all he did. They never blew up the pub. It's like, so feed people. Oh, man. You know, just, <laughs> I think that should be on your list. If you can provide I, a service, do it. <laughs> I'm so upset. I would have absolutely included that in my, in my instructions because that's something that any time traveler would absolutely want to know. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira again, and my guest today is Cody Cassidy. You likely know him as a contributor to Wired and Slate, from his books, including Who Ate the First Oyster. He's here today with How to Survive History, How to Outrun a Tyrannosaurus, Escape Pompeii, Get Off the Titanic, and Survive the Rest of History's Deadliest Catastrophes. Well, let's get to some of them. I mean, while I was tempted by Pompeii, you know, the eruption of a volcano, and an earthquake, you know, we've done this earthquake business. So uh, I'd like to do something a little different. Like if your city is being sacked by 40,000 Visigoth soldiers. Okay, take us back to the sack of Rome. What's our escape plan? <laughs> so on, on August 24th, 410, the, the, the famous sack of Rome occurred by uh, Alaric and the sort of leader of the Visigothic army. 40,000 soldiers rushed into the rushed through the gates and uh, the Aurelian walls, these walls that they built to surround Rome. And uh, I would suggest actually that you, uh, they came through the north of the city and and it's hard to say where you would be as a time traveler, but I personally would have been in the, in the spas, which are these famous Roman spas. They're actually incredibly luxurious bathhouses, sort of warm pools, they were heated. Uh, the room was sort of steam rooms. And so if you were there, which is sort of toward the center of the city, uh, your best bet would be to run uh, west, out west, because the the Visigoths were running toward the treasure, which was uh, actually right near where you were. Uh, the sort of uh, temples of uh, Saturn and Jerusalem, where 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 they kept the sort of uh, where they kept the treasure of Jerusalem there, which which may even included the Ark of the Covenant, if you sort of believe in that and that sort of thing. Uh, so. If you ran uh, toward the west, past the Colosseum, and then stuck to the lowlands, I also suggest because sort of the the Roman elite lived in the in the high in the hills there, and that's where I think the Visigoths would have. And they 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 tortured a lot of uh, Romans or for their location of their gold. So if you're in the lowlands, they might not think you're you have any gold, and and, and you can escape out the at the gates. And and the sack only occurred for about three days before the Visigoths moved on. So if you can just sort of hang out outside the city for, for a few days, then you can come back. And, and and Rome actually continued on for almost 60 years. It sort of staggered on as an empire before it officially collapsed. So first run, <laughs> then find out when it's <laughs> okay to come first, back. Run, run, though, first. None of that, well, maybe we'll just, you know, they'll be fine. But no, run. 
Run. Run is always yeah, a it's, good one. It's actually interesting. The, the, the sack of Rome is sort of, it became a political football um, between the, the, it had recently converted to Christianity, the Roman Empire. And so, uh, but there were still a lot of, um, there were still a lot of pagans within the, within the city and sort of became the pagans blamed the Christians for the, for the sack, you know, that sort of God's uh, revenge for this religious treachery. And so the, the, the pagans emphasized how brutal it was, but the, the, a lot of the Christian historians say uh, Alaric was actually a pretty nice guy. Alaric was also a Christian, so it didn't look good for the Christians. And they said, yeah, he was a pretty nice guy. He, was, he spared the people who, who uh, stayed in the churches, sort of old St. Peter's Basilica. They said, he, he, if, you, if you sheltered there, he, 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 he spared you. So they would suggest you run into the churches, but I would suggest that uh, they had some reason to maybe not tell the truth. So I, I would prefer to run. <laughs> and there can be a lot of treasure in churches. Don't forget. A lot of treasure. Yeah. And one of them certainly burned to the ground. So the, there really is quite a lot of reason to, to just get out of the city. Now, we know that anyone listening has survived the COVID pandemic, uh, where in the beginning, we could only surmise how it was transmitted and who might be susceptible. If it was everyone, uh, some just some, we just didn't know. And with that fresh in our minds, let's go to medieval times, to the mid-1300s, to London. How do you survive the Black Death? Yeah, this... Um... We actually know the very date that it arrived on June 25th in 1348. There was a sick sailor that sort of arrived in the south of England um, from somewhere in the somewhere in the Mediterranean, and over the next 18 months, 40% of the city of London uh, died. This is 40% of a city that had 100,000 people living in it. So it was, it was a catastrophe. Some call it the, one of the greatest catastrophes to ever befall humankind. Um, but you would think you should leave the city, and and that's actually a mistake because the real uh, the real danger in in the black peg was that it was spread by uh, fleas that rode on rats, of course. So it, the the rural areas actually had because they had more rats and fewer people. The the fatality rate there was actually worse in these farms than it was than when it was in the city. So unless uh, you have some sort of unless you're very wealthy and, and had some uh, some sort of manor in the in the in the in the suburbs, then it was actually safer to be in the city than it was than it was to leave. And and then, of course, you need to avoid flea bites, which means uh, sort of tucking in your pant legs, uh, staying in the cleaner parts of the city and 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 don't get a cat either. I, I thought maybe you should get a cat or rat traps, but the only thing worse than a than a live rat is a dead one, because then its fleas have to have to find a new host. So now we're talking about a time, you know, where it's like this was a bacteria, not a not a virus. Um, and it's mm -hmm. well before antibiotics. What was it like to get the Black Death? Well, uh, if you got it, the, the doctors were certainly no help. You, uh, and in fact, um, would have been uh, probably worse for your health. They, they, uh, their, their main treatment was bleeding, um, which uh, they, because they thought that the disease was a fever. Well, it was a fever and bleeding helps, helps lower the body temperature. So they thought that was a cure. But of course, it, it, it doesn't treat the underlying cause. So it's more like just painful than it is uh, curative. Uh, so I would recommend if you're, if you're in the black death to simply not go to the doctor and, and, uh, the, 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 the fatality rate of the disease is about 60%. So there's, um, it's, it's not great, but you do have a chance. Uh, and, but don't, don't see a doctor. I'm speaking with Cody Cassidy about how to survive history, how to outrun a Tyrannosaurus, escape Pompeii, get off the Titanic, and survive the rest of history's deadliest catastrophes. We'll talk more 
after a break. Both one-hour Technation programs and solely biotech podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, either technation.com or biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, some advice we all can use from Wharton professor Jonah Berger. He's here with The Catalyst, how to change anyone's mind. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Cody Cassidy about how to survive history. We've been talking about a plan of action. If you were to find yourself in medieval London in the year 1348, the time of the Black Death. Hold up in your room. Cover yourself. <laughs> don't go Drink out. A lot stay of water. in the city. <laughs> <laughs> no fleas. I don't know how you get the no fleas in those times, but no place. Yeah, tuck in your pan legs, tuck in your, you know, wear long sleeves, bathe frequently. They recommended not bathing at the time because they thought the disease entered through your pores and they thought bathing was a sort of opened your pores. But that's a mistake because if you're bathing, you can you can see the fleas and, and maybe get them off before they before they transmit the fire, uh, the bacteria. Now, finally, we get to one of my favorites. It's a voyage with the pirate Blackbeard and how to survive it. <laughs> And we've all seen the Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, how hard could it be? <laughs> well, th there's some truth to that. The Pirates were a, uh, a surprisingly, uh, or at least a gentler, some of the cases, gentler bunch than you would expect. They had a lot of rules on these ships. They're sort of bedtime at 8 p.m., sort of no fights on board. All, all These what? were all settled on land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> these are supposed um, to be pirates. <laughs> I know. You're sort of, sort of anarch, floating anarchy, but it's it, surprising that they had they had quite a bit of rules. There was, there was a lot of pirates on these ships, sometimes as many as 200. And so they were sort of... Um, they're not nice people. We should emphasize that they, but they were economically incentivized to keep things, uh, to follow rules and 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 not fight and not let them devolve into sort of these anarchy, uh, little floating rivalries and wars. Because uh, the only way to, to to sort of 
stay on mission really with 200 people is to, to, to have strong rules and, and, and avoid these sort of rivalries. So your plan has to be follow the rules. Follow the rules, certainly, because even though walking the plank is a, is a Hollywood myth, marooning is not. They, they did use that as a punishment. Uh, and, and surprisingly, some of the Hollywood, uh, the Hollywood tropes are, are, are true. Sort of the, um, the accent R matey is a sort of uh, approximation of the truth because many of the pirates were actually from an area of England called, uh, they had a Cornish accent. And sort of, which is, if you hear it, somewhat similar to that. It might be an exaggerated <laughs> form of the truth, but it is, it is somewhat similar. Um, and so if you, you might be able to fit in and English was a sort of, uh, was the sort of lingua franca amongst them. It was a multicultural crew, but, uh, a lot of English was spoken. Well, I have to say, this is a completely original book. And I noticed that you dedicated your book to mom and dad. Always a good thing. Always a good thing. And I guess they know you pretty well. I mean, it's like, it's like oh, yeah, sounds like a book he'd write. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it, sort of my dad was a big influence on me. Sort of, uh, I guess he, he worked in the publishing industry. So he had a lot of uh, uh, he's. He has even more, some of these ideas may even be his, I think, or at least the, the ideas behind the ideas. Certainly lots of uh, wild concepts that, that I absorbed. Well, we haven't covered nearly anything. I mean, there's the worst tornado in American history, the Donner Party, even asteroid collisions. Uh, but Cody, I do want to thank you for joining us, and I hope you come back and see us again. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. My guest today is Cody Cassidy. His book is How to Survive History. How to Outrun a Tyrannosaurus, Escape Pompeii, Get Off the Titanic, and Survive the Rest of History's Deadliest Catastrophes. It's published by Penguin. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Now some advice for situations we face every day. My guest is Wharton Professor Jonah Berger, here with his book, The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. Well, Jonah, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to start with the subtitle to your book, How to Change People's Minds. I was just wondering if you sent a copy to everybody in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. You know, it's a funny question. I, in fact, reached out to many people. I didn't reach out to the candidates themselves. I reached out to their communication directors through various social media channels. Didn't hear a lot back, but I, I certainly reached out and tried to spread the word. Now, one of the statements in the book that I thought was really important is people think that when changing minds, someone has to lose. Yeah. I think we have this notion, when we try to change minds, we very much focus on ourselves and the change we want to see, right? So if I'm a salesperson, I think oh, I'll, I'll change someone's mind and they'll buy my product. And I feel like if they don't, I lose. Uh, and if they do, I win. But it, it's not so uh, zero sum as we might think. There's an old uh, adage in, in negotiations that talks about, uh, you know, two people negotiating over an orange. And uh, they say, oh, you know, we both want this orange. How are we going to split it? And so they end up splitting it in half. 
Uh, but they actually should think about it a little differently because one person wanted to eat the orange uh, and another person needed the orange rind to, to bake a cake. Uh, and both would have been happier uh, had they looked at it uh, a different way. And so you know, the most interesting thing for me about doing research for this book was the way we think about change, right? We always think about pushing. We always think about adding more pressure, more reasons, more information, more facts, more figures. Even when I try to change people's minds, I think about, you know, what's that one argument or that line of reasoning? If I just make this, they'll end up coming around. We think a lot less about a slightly different approach, which is why hasn't that person changed already? What are the barriers or the roadblocks, the obstacles that are preventing them from changing? Uh, and how can we mitigate them? I think a really good analogy to me is, is almost like a, a car. So imagine you're parked on a hill, you're trying to get your car to start. So you get in the seat, you put your seatbelt on, you stick your key uh, in the ignition. Uh, often when we turn that key and we push our foot on the gas, if the car doesn't go, we think we just need more gas. If that person doesn't change, if we just add more reasons, more information, more facts, more figures, they'll come around. Uh, but sometimes we don't need more gas. We just need to depress the parking brake. And so that's really what the catalyst is, is all about. It's all about, well, what are those often hidden parking brakes, those obstacles that we don't see? And how by mitigating or minimizing them can we make change more likely? So you're really looking to release the parking brake. Oh, certainly, right? First, we have to identify it. And I think that, to me, was, was one of the most interesting things about writing this book. We think a lot about the change we want to see. We think a lot less about the barriers or the obstacles that might be in the way of the person who we're trying to change, whether that person is a spouse, whether that person is a boss, whether that person is a customer, whether that person is an entire organization or a country. We think a lot about what we want them to do. We think a lot less about, well, what are those roadblocks in their own? life. And once we understand those roadblocks, we can actually make change a lot easier. Well, the name of the book is The Catalyst. It's not how to change people's minds or anyone's mind. And catalyst is a term used in a number of fields, but it means something very specific in science. Is it compatible with our term in science or not? So we, when as, as lay people, when we try to use the word catalyst, we use a very general meaning. We say a, a catalyst is a change agent. You know, this person was the catalyst or the sort of ingredient or the change agent that led something to, to happen, the sort of the rock that tipped the scales to make it go in a particular direction. But when you look to chemistry, a catalyst actually has a very precise meaning. And it's a very interesting uh, meaning. So anyone who has any background in chemistry remembers their high school chemistry class. You probably remember that change in chemistry is, is really really hard. It takes a long time. Uh, it takes, uh, you know, hundreds, if not thousands or millions of years for uh, carbon to turn into diamonds or, you know, plant matter to turn into oil. Uh, and so chemists often use a special set of substances to make uh, change happen faster and easier. Change in chemistry requires temperature or pressure. So if you think about a popcorn kernel, for example, imagine you're not going to microwave popcorn. You've just got a kernel on your counter in front of you. Well, it's not just going to pop, right? You got to do something to make it pop. You have to stick it in a pot with a lot of temperature, a lot of pressure, and eventually that temperature or pressure makes change happen. If you add energy, enough energy, uh, change happens. But there are a special set of substances that chemists often use to make change happen faster uh, and easier. These substances clean the grime on your contact lenses, and they clean uh, the exhaust uh, in your car engines. Uh, they do everything from make yogurt happen to uh, turn petroleum into bike helmets. But what's most interesting about these substances uh, is how they make change happen. 
they don't add more temperature or they don't add more pressure. They don't increase the amount of energy. They actually lower the amount of energy required. And you might say, well, how is that possible? Uh, well, what they do is they create an alternate path for a reaction to occur. Uh, and these substances are called catalysts and they've won dozens of Nobel prizes, uh, but they're equally important in the social world. Again, not adding temperature, not adding pressure, not adding more fuel to that fire, more regions, more pushing people, but thinking about, okay, well, what are those barriers and how can we mitigate them? How can we make the same change happen with less energy, not more, by understanding why change happens in the first place? You talk about hostage negotiators, and it's very impressive. I mean, they don't just say, I'm looking at you, and now you'll walk out and release your hostages, and your hands will be up, and everything will be fine. Crisis negotiation, I guess it started with the 1972 Munich Olympics. Take us back there and and tell us what's happened since that time. Sure. So crisis negotiation used to be very much like a traditional uh, negotiation that we might think of. It was zero sum. It was, you know, come out with your hands up. It was release the hostages or else. Uh, It was very much sort of traditional bargaining, uh, threatening, punishment, sort of making demands uh, and assuming that would work. Uh, After the Munich disaster, both negotiators uh, as well as crisis uh, folks more generally realized, look, there's got to be a different way. And so what they started doing is thinking more about psychology. Uh, understanding the behavioral science behind how change works and starting to apply that behavioral science in these very high-stakes situations. Uh, And novice negotiators obviously want to do what most of us want to do. They want to jump straight to influence. They want to jump right away to what they're hoping to achieve. You know, they say, hey, you know, you do this or else. Um, You know, if you don't do X, Y, Z, it's not what you want is not going to happen. Uh, But a lot of negotiators I talked to pointed out, you know, that really doesn't work because it's not in the frame of mind of the person you're trying to change, right? You come in there, there's a bank robber holed up in the bank. They've got hostages. You say, come out with your hands up. That's the last thing they want to do. And so what you have to do really is you have to start not with what you want to achieve, but you have to start with them. Start by understanding, well, why does that uh, bank robber there in the first place? Why is that person taking hostages? Why are they demanding money? What is it they're hoping to achieve? Now, you can't let them get off scot-free. You can't let them do whatever they want. But by understanding them in the first place, by starting with them, you're much more likely to get to an outcome that you want as well as one that they'll they'll tolerate. Uh, one great negotiator I talked to you know, said, I always start with, hey, you know, my name is Greg. Are you okay? And what he does is not make demands. He starts by forming a relationship with that person. He starts by building a bridge, creating some trust and creating some understanding, trying to begin to understand, well, why is that person there? Asking questions, not making demands. Are you okay? What do you need? Starting to understand that person and and their needs and start to basically become their friend. He told me this amazing story, and and it's a situation that none of us would ever want to be in, but it's a situation where he was interacting with a guy who wanted to commit suicide. And so it was a guy, he had lost his job, he had an insurance policy, uh, and he thought the only way he could provide for his family was by killing himself. He no longer had money through his job. He wanted to provide for his family. Look, the only way I'm going to provide for my family is is by killing himself. And so he's holed up threatening to, to kill himself. And so the negotiator comes on the 
scene. He starts by saying, hey, are you okay? What do you need? And he starts having a conversation, not jumping to the outcome of that conversation, which is, hey, you know, if you kill yourself, by the way, the, the insurance policy is not going to play out, right? That's what most of us would want to do. We'd want to say, look, this isn't going to work for you. Let me just explain it to you and, and you'll come around. Not really, right? Because if that person's highly emotional, they're probably going to do something really bad, right? And so we can't just jump to the conclusion. We have to start with understanding. And we started having a conversation. Oh, well, well, why do you want, why do you want to kill yourself? And the guy said, oh, I need the insurance money. I lost my job. I need to provide for my family. Oh, it sounds like you care a lot about your family. Tell me a little bit more about them. Well, I have two sons. Okay, that's great. You know, I have sons also. What about your sons? What are their names? What are they like? And he starts having a real conversation, just like any two people might have. He learns the guy cares a lot about his sons. He takes them fishing. He wants to grow up to be young men. Uh, he wants to, to treat them, learn them how to treat women. He wants them to be good members of society. And, you know, he has this conversation. And, and towards the end, he goes around and he says, okay, it sounds like you care a lot about your sons. And that's where he's going to move to what he wants the outcome to be, right? And the guy says, yeah, I care a lot about my sons. And the negotiator goes, well, if you kill yourself, your sons are going to lose the best friend they've ever had. And notice what he did right there. And I get, I get chills even now, uh, even, even saying what he, what he did. But what he really cleverly did is he used what that person wanted and helped guide the journey to help that person realize that the best way to get what they wanted was to do what he wanted to do in the first place. He didn't tell them, hey, don't commit suicide. You're not going to get the money. He said, what is that thing you actually want? Let me show you how the best way to get there is actually doing what I wanted you to do in the first place. Didn't take two minutes. Didn't take 30 seconds. Wasn't the easiest thing ever, but as a powerful technique, I think all of us can use, right? Hopefully, God, hopefully none of us will ever be in this situation of trying to uh, convince someone not to commit suicide. But by understanding how that works, by starting with understanding, by starting with the person who we're trying to convince, we can be much more effective in, in getting them to come around. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Wharton Marketing Professor Jonah Berger. You may remember him from his earlier books, Contagious and Invisible Influence. He's here today with The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. These were examples of talking to one person. Sometimes it's one person or it's an organization like where you work or it's your parents uh, or it's the school or it's the neighborhood association or it's the entire federal government. Do the rules change depending on who you're speaking with? You know, I think where we have to start is by finding those barriers, finding those roadblocks or obstacles. Um, as I talk about in the book, there, there are five key ones that come up uh, again and again. There's reactance, uh, endowment, distance, uncertainty, uh, and corroborating evidence. And you, you put those five together and they spell uh, in an acronym, they, they make the word reduce, uh, which is exactly what good catalysts do. They don't push harder. Uh, they reduce or they remove barriers. Uh, and not all five of those barriers are important all of the time. Uh, some of them are more important in an organizational context. Some of them are more important when you're trying to change a customer's mind. Um, some of them may be more useful for individuals or groups. But I think what I found most surprising is that approach, looking for barriers, 
is just quite different than most of us are, are already doing. You know, I, I did a study uh, at the Wharton School. I asked hundreds of executives from a range of different companies and organizations, you know, what is something that you want to change? And they wrote that down. Uh, and then how do you usually think about trying to change that or what have you tried already? Uh, and over 98% of the time, people come up with some version of pushing. We're just not used to thinking about those barriers. And so I think in the first place is identifying those barriers, whether it's a one person or an organization, and then once we've figured out the barriers, then we need to think about how to how to mitigate them. And, and that's really what the book is all about, right? Identifying these key barriers and providing some at least preliminary strategies, regardless of what type of situation you're in, that you can use to, to mitigate or, or loosen some of these obstacles. So many people today are out on things like eBay or any kind of auction site or a site of special interest where someone's selling something and somebody else is trying to find it or is trying to buy it. You say sellers value things more than buyers and why you need to have the upside be 2.6 times larger than the downside to get people to take action. Yeah. So we, all of us, uh, tend to be attached to things we're doing uh, already. And uh, a good way to think about that is, is you know, imagine I, I offered you a mug. So I imagine I said, hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm going to give you uh, this Wharton coffee mug. It's nice and white. Uh, it's got a Wharton logo on the side. Uh, and I was willing to give it to you. Okay. So I gave you this coffee mug and I asked you how much you'd be willing to pay for uh, or willing to sell that coffee mug for. If you had to sell that mug to someone else, how much you'd be willing to sell it for? And I asked a separate group of people, hey, uh, imagine you didn't have this mug yet. How much are you willing to buy it for? We might expect that those two amounts would be the same. After all, that coffee mug is the same, whether you already own it or whether you don't. Uh, a house is the same, whether it's yours or whether it's not. It's still the same house. It has the same uh, bricks. It has the same roof, all those different things. But it turns out we value things sometimes two times as much uh, if we have them than if we don't. Uh, that coffee mug, for example, if you're buying it, you might be willing to pay 2 or $3. If you're selling it, you probably want 6 or even $7. Uh, the longer you've lived in a home, uh, even outside of its actual price on the market, the the higher you value it above uh, market price. This is called the endowment effect. The things we already have, the things we already own, the things we already use, the things we already know, we tend to be attached to them. And it becomes really hard to imagine giving them up, uh, even if something better uh, comes along. Uh, and part of the reason why uh, is a broader phenomenon called loss aversion. Uh, and some of your listeners are probably familiar with this idea already. Uh, but imagine I took a coin and I said, hey, I'm going to flip a coin. Uh, heads, you win $100. Tails, you lose $100. Would you take that bet? Now, most of your listeners would probably say, no, I, I wouldn't take that bet. Uh, you know, I, I do an expected value calculation if I'm going to Economist, I say, okay, 50% chance heads of, of winning $100, 50% chance of uh, tails losing $100. The expected value of that bet is zero. I shouldn't take the bet. It's, it's not really worth it. Uh, so let me sweeten the pot uh, a little bit. I say, hey, I'll, I'll flip that coin. Heads, you win $110. Uh, tails, you lose $100. There, the expected value is positive. I won't make you guys break out your calculators, but uh, you can see that the, the winning is, is higher than the losing. So most people should take that bet. But most of you listening probably would say, well, no, I wouldn't be willing to lose $100 to get a chance to win $110. The upside's just not uh, good enough. It's not big enough to overcome 
overcome that that downside. And that's the idea of loss aversion. The downsides are often weighed more heavily uh, than than the upsides. The losses uh, loom larger than the gains loom positive. Uh, and so think about something like getting a new phone, for example. Uh, sure, the new phone has a better battery life. It has more memory. It has a better camera, but it also has a different footprint. Uh, you need to fork over a few hundred dollars to buy it. Uh, you may need to learn a new system or a new software uh, to use it. You have to port all your pictures over. All of that requires time and effort, and all of that is a downside. And all of that cost, when we focus on change, we often focus on the upside, the good things. We often pay a little less attention to the downside. And it turns out that upside has to be at least two times as good to get us to overcome those those downsides. So if we're at work, say, and one group wants to do one thing and your group wants to do the other, if they're of equal value, the other group isn't going to move. No, it's like it's equal value. But if you can increase your value, the value of what you're doing, the perceived value up from the other group, then you got a chance to change. Certainly. I mean, I mean, one thing I talk about in the book is the status quo often seems costless. So, so imagine we're at the office. We're already using a certain program. We're engaging in a certain initiative. We're doing things a certain way. That might be the status quo. Uh, and you want to do something differently. You want to start a new initiative. You want to use a new service. Uh, you want to think about a, a different approach. Uh, that new thing's got to be better. And people think, look, let's just stick with the old one. It's safer. It's easier. We know how it works. Yes, it's got some downsides, but we know what those downsides are. We should stick with it. And so one thing I talk a lot about in the book is it seems like the status quo is costless, but it often isn't. And so one question is, how can we highlight uh, the costs uh, of inaction? Um, there's a great study, one of my favorite studies from the, in, from the book, uh, looks at uh, injuries and they compare minor and major injuries. So imagine you you sprain your finger, you sprain your ankle versus, you know, you break your finger, you break your ankle, a more major injury. Which do you think would cause you more pain, uh, a more minor injury or a more major one? And, and most people say, well, of, of course, the major one, right? I mean, you, you break your finger, you break your ankle, you, you, you know, really hurt your knee. That's a big major injury. Of course, that'll be more impactful than the minor one. But it actually turns out that the minor injuries cause you more pain. Because for those major injuries, we get them fixed. If we break our finger, we go to the doctor, we go to the hospital, we get it set, we get a cast on our ankle, we go through rehab, we do all the work to get it to be fixed. But if it's a minor injury, we never get it fixed. It's below that threshold. And so because we never get it fixed, it ends up causing us more pain. And that's the same thing as we go back to that idea of the office. That old project, that old initiative, that old way of doing things is probably below that threshold to get changed. So we need to make people realize, hey, over time, those little losses add up to actually a, a big one. It's actually not safe to stick with the status quo. I, I tell a story in the book of a cousin of mine well, actually, every time he wrote an email, he'd write out at the end, regards Charles. Uh, so, you know, he'd write the email and then rather than, you know, automating that little signature part at the bottom, he'd write out the word regards, comma, Charles. And I said, hey, that takes you a lot of time. You know, why don't you just use an automatic signature? I said, well, it doesn't take me much time, right? It only takes me one or two seconds every time I do it. You know, it's going to take me a long time to learn how to do auto signature. I haven't done it yet. It's going to take me a while. I'll just stick with the old way of doing it. That cost was below the threshold. Right? It was like that minor injury. Sure, his finger might hurt a little bit, but it's not big enough to go to the doctor. Sure, the old way of doing things isn't perfect, but it's not bad enough to go get it fixed. And so what we have to do is we have to make people realize, wait, that status quo isn't costless. It's big enough to get it fixed. In the case of my cousin, for example, I said, well, 
how many emails do you send out every day? He said, oh, I don't know, maybe a hundred. And I said, okay, well then how many emails do you send out every month? And he said, okay, did the math. And I said, well, how many seconds for each of those emails did it take you to write that email signature? And he did the math and then he opened up his computer and typed into Google, you know, how to automate your email signature. Because what he realized is yes, it's only one or two seconds each time, but add that seconds up over many emails, over many weeks and months. And suddenly now just, it's not a little, uh, you know, sprained finger. It's a big injury. We've got to get it fixed. And same thing for that problem at the office. Show people while what they're doing might not be that much worse than what you're suggesting, add it up over time. Those losses, those little downsides actually make something big enough that's worth getting fixed. In the old days in sales, you said, here's the deal. Take it or leave it. Do it or don't do it. And then the idea was you went silent. The next person who spoke loses, meaning you don't speak. If they speak, you got you probably got the sale. Um, you're saying do it, don't do it, or give them a defer choice, the ability to defer. Talk about that. Yeah, I think this notion of giving people choices is is quite powerful. Um, and so uh, people have this ingrained uh, anti-persuasion radar. Uh, and in the book, I talk about it as, as reactants, but it's almost like sort of an anti-missile defense system for persuasion, almost like a spidey sense, uh, someone called it. Anytime we feel that someone's trying to persuade us or change our mind, our defenses go up. Uh, we get an email from a salesperson, we delete it. Uh, commercial comes on television, um, uh, you know, we walk to the other room. Uh, you know, uh, anytime we, even our spouse tries to persuade us, we know they're trying to persuade us. Our defenses go up. You know, your spouse asks you what you want to do this weekend. Uh, and you say, go to a movie. They might've been fine going to a movie in the first place, but because you suggested it, well, now they're a little bit, uh, against it. And so <laughs> what can we do to, to get around that? Uh, and so a great well, technique there's marriage I talk about, counseling. <laughs> uh, there is marriage counseling. That's certainly, this is a shorter way to get around. Okay. Maybe. Oh, and cheaper, um, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, hopefully. Yes. I did talk to some marriage counseling though. They were very helpful for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I talk about is, is providing a menu or give people what I'll call guided choices, right? And so when your spouse asks you, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? Rather than giving them one option, uh, go to a movie, uh, give them two or three. And notice how that subtly shifts their role, right? In, in, in before, when you give them one option, they're sitting there going, what are all the reasons why I don't like what you suggested? It's warm outside this weekend. We just saw a movie. Uh, they think about all the reasons why you're wrong. They're counter-arguing. They're almost like a, a high school debate team, right? Poking and prodding that message. Whether you're a salesperson or talking to your spouse, someone's sitting there thinking about all the reasons why they don't want to do what you suggest. But if you give them two options or even three options, suddenly now their role is different. Now they're comparing those different options and thinking about which one is the best for them, which means they're much more likely to go along with something you suggested at the end of the day. If you say, hey, we could go to a movie or go out for Chinese food, now they're thinking going, okay, well, rather than think about which one I hate, they're thinking about which one they like, which makes them much more likely to choose one. You've shifted their role. You've allowed them to participate. Notice you're not giving them a hundred choices, right? You walk into a Japanese restaurant, they give you a menu. They don't give you 200 different options. You can't have Chinese food or Italian food. They give you a small set of options and they let you to choose from those options. It's choice, but it's guided choice. You're picking the set of options. You're shaping that journey, but by allowing someone to participate, they're more likely to go along. My guest today is Wharton Professor Jonah Berger. His book is The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. It's published by Simon & Schuster. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Anne Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.